This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, whenever there's a cool science discovery, we love to talk about it here on the show. And when we saw this one yesterday, had to do it, right? pair of new, two new studies, actually, that says there could be water on the moon. And that's a pretty big difference from what used to have a scientific consensus, and that is there not being water on the moon. So let's talk about how significant this is. Joining us is Mubdi Rahman, Research Associate at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. Good morning. Good morning, Sunny. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. This is exciting, isn't it? Yeah, this is a big deal at the moment, and it's a really kind of surprising discovery. Okay, so how did they figure this out finally? So it's actually, the way they did it is really cool. There is this uh, telescope that is mounted on a basically a modified Boeing 747. So it's, uh, <laughs> they basically cut a hole at the side of the Boeing 747 and put this infrared telescope in it, and it flies around over, you know, above most of our atmosphere. And that's been critical because what they were looking for is a type of light that water produces. And the problem with trying to do that from the ground is that our atmosphere has water. So you can't actually, anything that, uh, any of that light is probably coming from our atmosphere if you do it at the ground level, so you have to get around that. Um, and so they, paint, they pointed this telescope at the moon, and lo and behold, on, you know, on the sunny side of the moon, at this point where there was actually light illuminating the moon, they found actually a substantial amount of water, like the equivalent of something like um, a bottle of water, like just one you know, standard sort of drinking bottle of water, mm-hmm. uh, in like a you know, cubic meter of soil. Uh, and it's all just sort of in there, and it's liquid. Okay, but Mubdi, then why didn't we find this when we actually landed on the moon and brought back samples? Well, so, I mean, part of it is where we were on the moon, and part of it is that we don't actually, like, this is the first discovery of a pocket of it. It could be, much like Earth, there could be things like deserts and wetlands on the moon in the same way uh, that we have, you know, you know, the Sahara Desert is much, much drier than the right. Amazon rainforest. Um, and so part of it, we've only, like, really probed a couple of areas where people have actually landed. Okay, so then what does this mean for our kind of future trips to the moon? Well, one of the cool things about it is, so, you know, there's been a lot of talk of having a more sustained human presence on the moon. So, uh, you know, potentially having a moon base, having a moon telescope, things like that. Uh, And one of the things that we would have needed to brought uh, in, you know, large quantities is water, right? Water is critical, not only just to, you know, if there are humans there, but to a lot of like our industrial processes and a lot of making things work requires water here on Earth. Um, This could potentially mean that some of that could just be on the earth and we could have some sort of harvesting recycling system that allows us to use that. Interesting. Okay, so then does this change, do you think, our attitude towards going back to the moon? Uh, I mean, I think our attitude's been changing for about a decade now, where people have been excited about the possibilities of the moon. I mean, one of the big things that we can do with the moon is it actually is a great way of blocking the Earth. And so we can put things on the far side of the moon uh, that, you know, don't pick up any of our radio signals on uh, Earth. Uh, But this definitely makes it easier and potentially uh, a more intriguing place. And it already also shows... You know, as much as we think we know about the moon, there is a lot of mystery. If we, you know, if we're only now just trying to figure out, like, pockets of water that are fairly, yeah. you know, fairly massive. Yeah, that must be surprising to people who studied the moon for a long time, Being because that was my reaction is, how did we not know this before? 
Yeah, uh, and I think it just speaks to how hard it is to do some of this stuff. In fact, in many cases, it's easier to do this stuff for like planets that are much, much further away than our own moon. Uh, one of the things that we often don't think about is that the moon is like really bright. Uh, that's a big challenge. It's actually very difficult to get a very clean, measurable signal. It's like, you know, if you stare at the sun, you're not actually seeing the sun. Right. You're seeing just the blur around you from all the sunlight. Uh, the moon, for a lot of telescopes, has been like that. So you're saying we take the moon for granted? Yes, we do. We definitely do. Maybe now we won't do that. So what's the next step now that we know this? So I think there's going to be a great deal of follow-up, right? This was just sort of a chance observation. Um, but now, like, and it was a risk. It was entirely a risk that uh, they wanted to do. They didn't think it was actually going to amount to anything. Um, so really? now, yeah, they re- they really just thought, you know, it's, it's a possibility. It, you know, mm-hmm. we'll see. Maybe we'll get nothing. Um, but now you can actually, like, expect people to do proper, like, hydrological surveys, try to figure out, like, where is the water on the moon? How much does it change? Is it different from, like, in the bottom of craters versus on the outside? Um, what happens when, you know, the the shadow of the sun or the shadow of the earth and the light of the sun gets blocked? How does that change the water? Like, all of these things have just opened up a ton of questions about, like, the ecology of the moon. Fascinating stuff. Mubdi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. As Mubdi Rahman, Research Associate at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto with the fascinating new discovery. So two studies, new ones, say that there could actually be lots of water on the moon, and that is a complete reversal from what used to be a scientific consensus on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about Canada and how we are perceived by other countries all over the world. Well, we're seen as competent and honest on the world stage. We are third in reputation, as it turns out, behind only Germany and the United Kingdom. How do we know all this? Well, it's part of the annual Anholt Ipsos Nation Brands Index that ranks countries based on their international reputation. So joining us now to talk about it is Sean Simpson, the Vice President of Ipsos. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. How do they determine this? Yeah, well, most ranking exercises are looking at statistics, essentially, you know, looking at uh, uh, health rates and looking at uh, education rates and then coming up with some kind of ranking about quality of life or, or what have you. What this study does is it actually asks people in 20 countries around the world to assess 50 countries around the world on their reputation, the way that they are perceived on things like uh, their governance, their culture, their people, their tourism, their uh, immigration investments, uh, um, and how welcoming they are. And, uh, and so we put it all together and we get an index. And what we found is that Canada ranks third in, uh, in reputation only behind uh, Germany, and the United Kingdom, and we've we've held pat on that third place. That's where we were last year, and we're holding steady. Okay, and so they did this even in the time of COVID? Yeah, absolutely, and I think perhaps even more importantly done uh, in the time of COVID, research hasn't, hasn't stopped, uh, because, uh, you know, I, I think we're seeing COVID as having an impact on how some companies, uh, companies, excuse me, countries are viewed by citizens of other countries. For example, the United States has not dealt with COVID well, uh, as, as we well know. They've dropped from sixth place last year 
to 10th place uh, because uh, ratings on, on governance, for example, have, have fallen because we've seen, a, right. I think, a pretty profound lack of leadership in the United States in, in, in tackling the crisis. On the other hand, uh, countries like New Zealand, for example, have, have moved up the list on account of governments because their prime minister and, and Australia as well uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, are, are seen as, as handling the pandemic very well and as it's having a, a positive impact on their reputation. And yet in the UK, you know, not as much so. They're, they've taken a lot of criticism for how they're handling this. It's kind of been a mixed bag. And yet they did very well here. Yes, they did do very well. I think it's because uh, there's less attention paid on, you know, what's happening in the UK um, than there has been in the United States. Uh, United States, you know, with, with, with as many cases as, as they have. And the, the United Kingdom has actually been able to improve on perceptions of, of its culture, the friendliness of its people, the appeal of its tourism, for example. All of those things actually don't really change as a mm-hmm. result of, of, of COVID, but you know, uh, uh, factors that, um, that that just endure from year over year. And I noticed that France also kind of slipped in the rankings. Yeah, France has slipped. They were uh, in the top three, actually. They, France was uh, number two last year, and they've dropped down to, uh, to number five, um, driven really by um, weaknesses on the, the immigration front and the, and the, the, the people, uh, the sort of friendliness and welcoming um, nature of the people. There's been a lot of uh, racial tension in France the last number of years and, and, and terrorist a- attacks, uh, you know, maybe as a result of that tension. Um, and I think people are taking notice and, and as such, France has, has fallen down the list a little bit. Okay, and so what were Canada's weaknesses then? That's a great question. So, uh, you know, Germany, as I said, was number one, but it didn't actually score first in any particular category. Hmm. It was just kind of steady eddy across all the categories. Canada actually ranked first in three of the six subcategories. So number one uh, was governance. You know, uh, we're seen as that place of peace, order, and, and, and good governance. That's mm-hmm. what our Constitution says. Uh, people, the friendliness of our, our people. Uh, you know, we, we continue, you know, we think we're friendly people, and, you know, I guess it holds true because the world thinks so as well. <laughs> and our, uh, our our welcoming nature to uh, immigration and, and foreign investment, even though we've tightened up our borders as a result of COVID, still Canada is seen as a very welcoming place uh, for, for people looking to settle in another country. Okay. Okay, and I know that the, the one of the areas that we didn't do as well would be an area like culture, which I find so ironic, given that apparently our people are great, but what, we have no culture? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think we as Canadians I even struggle to identify what our sort of national cultural identity is beyond sort of uh, poutine, lumberjacks, and butter tarts. Um, <laughs> and and it, that seems to resonate with, with people uh, outside of the country. They, they believe we have great contemporary culture, you know, that, you know, our movie and theater and, and the arts and, and uh, television are, are strong. But in terms of that sort of long-lasting cultural heritage, look, we're a fairly new country by European standards. And I think when people are looking at Canada saying, well, in this case, uh, how can Canada compete with the UK, France, Italy, Germany, etc., etc.? Okay, and the other area was tourism that apparently we need to work on. But then again, who doesn't need to work on tourism right now? At this particular juncture, absolutely. Look, we, we, we did have a strength in that area. It was in uh, desire to visit. People want to come to Canada. They see it as safe. They see it as reasonably priced. We've got beautiful uh, you know, nature, mountains, rivers, etc. 
Um, but what we don't have, perhaps outside of Quebec City and maybe Montreal, are beautiful historic buildings. And a lot of times when people are traveling for tourism, they want to see those buildings that are very old. And uh, and you get that in Central America, you get that in Europe, you get that in a lot of other places. But, you know, we're just not old enough in Canada to have too much of those nice, beautiful old buildings. Well, Sean, we're clearly not advertising enough because they need to go to Newfoundland. Newfoundland and Labrador, that's where the old buildings are. The very old buildings. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, Canada, we there are things that we know about ourselves that maybe other peoples don't. And so perhaps we just don't do true. as good a job as we need to in telling our stories abroad. So, so true. Sean, thank you so much for that. My pleasure. That's Sean Simpson, the vice president of Ipsos, talking about the Anhold Ipsos Nation Brands Index that ranks countries based on their international reputation. Canada came in third. Uh, we're seen as competent and honest. We came in third behind Germany and the United Kingdom. So not so bad. Uh, but the tourism thing is funny because of the old buildings and the old cultural sites. Funny story here. Years ago, like, I don't know, early 90s, I was in Newfoundland visiting family and I went to Fairyland where they're, where they're digging up the foundations of what was the colony of Avalon. Essentially, it's where the Mayflower stopped to get supplies before it continued on. Very, very old, right? And so they're taking their time. Didn't even have to buy a ticket to wander onto the site. Walked right up to the edge as they were digging. And I asked one of the tour guides, hey, what, what took so long for all of this to be dug up? Like, how come this isn't a bigger kind of huge tourist site where it would be, you think, just about anywhere else. And she kind of looked at me and said, oh, we always knew it was here. And I thought, ah, okay. They don't appreciate how great and how old and how historic this stuff is because you know what? They just live with that history in Newfoundland. But those old buildings and old sites are here. I think we just need to do a better job of promoting them, getting the word out there. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the potential for a COVID-19 vaccine, because given people's behavior, I think it's becoming pretty clear that we won't get completely back to normal until we have one that people can take. And then in the news this week, there was the potential for a major breakthrough with one of the vaccines being developed. So let's talk about it. Joining us now is Jason Tetro, infectious disease expert and host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. So do we have reason to be hopeful here? Yeah, uh, we did back in July when the first results came out from this particular vaccine that was uh, developed at Oxford University and now is part of uh, the AstraZeneca line. And um, it essentially showed that um, in, in elderly individuals that there, there was some kind of immune response uh, and it wasn't just the antibody, it was, it was also the T cell, so that's a very good thing. And now what we've heard, uh, at least through press release, is that it seems to be across the age spectrum that we're seeing a similar uh, result. We don't have the data, so I can't really tell you what the data is saying. But what I can say is that this type of announcement is usually made uh, very carefully. So there is definitely reason for hope. So they wouldn't want to get people's hopes up or anything like that? No, um, especially at this point in time, because everybody's eyes are looking towards the vaccine. And as you just said, um, because human behavior is starting to forget, if you will, um, that yes, indeed, we do have a pandemic virus that is circulating out there, that, um, you know, vaccines are becoming more and more the reason for people to have hope. So you got to be careful. Yeah, what is the process like, though, for all of this, Jason? Well, I mean, 
right now we are in what we call a phase three. In other words, you're trying to identify whether or not uh, the, the vaccine in a population is going to reduce the amount of uh, infection. And if that can be shown, then you've essentially gotten past that hurdle, and then you can say, okay, this is ready for adoption, and, and then it will be released to the public. It's a really, really hard hurdle to get over. Um, and, of course, if that doesn't come out, if it's sort of equivocal in terms of the way that the responses or, or the results show themselves, then you're going to have to go to challenge studies, which we're already hearing about, where people are purposefully infected with the coronavirus after receiving a vaccine. Hopefully we don't have to go there. Right. So what would prevent us from having to go there? Uh, well, if we all of a sudden see a significant drop in the vaccinated population in terms of infection by uh, the coronavirus, then we know that the vaccine is uh, partly responsible for being able to provide some uh, immune response. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at the actual uh, blood of these individuals and you see higher levels of antibody and T-cell uh, responses in comparison to people who got the other uh, vaccine, um, which is not for COVID, then you know you definitely are on the right track. Okay. So like you don't need, I guess, everybody to be immune. You just need enough people to be able to fight this thing off. Okay. So that's where we get into this idea of elimination threshold. A lot of people call it uh, herd immunity. And what essentially you're trying to do is you're trying to reduce the spread of the virus in the community to a level where susceptible or, or naive people, people who have never seen it before, um, won't get infected. Now, this is a great idea. And um, when you have a vaccine, it allows you to get up to that level. And for um, you know, a virus like, uh, like this coronavirus, you're probably looking at maybe 60 to 70 percent of the population need to be vaccinated or at least have some kind of immunity. Where the trouble is coming in is it looks like we may end up having to go for boosters uh, because some of the results that we're seeing with respect to natural infection, people just simply got it in the community, uh, their levels of immunity are not staying high enough for a long enough period of time to give them protection. Okay, so what is the timeline generally like, though, Jason, for getting a vaccine kind of from start to finish? Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> years, right? It's like usually years. Yeah, we're talking uh, years to decades. Uh, I mean, uh, j just look at some of the uh, the vaccines that we've had over the last little while. Uh, Chickenpox, uh, uh, um, human papillomavirus, uh, you know, even the influenza virus to get to the point where it was, you know, released and, and known to be safe. I mean, this process can take years and years and years. We are seeing this happening in a matter of months. And the reason for that is because we've developed what we call platforms. In other words, you have sort of a backbone structure, and then you add on to that depending on what virus or, or bacteria you want to fight. And so that platform is giving us the ability to really rapidly create something and get it into phase one trials within a matter of weeks to months as opposed to many, many, many years. Okay, so you're hopeful, though. It sounds like you're hopeful. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm very hopeful that we are going to have a vaccine. What I'm wondering about is whether or not we're going to have enough people take the vaccine, because unfortunately, its reputation has already been tarnished by certain people. Um, and then if we get to enough people, how many of them are going to have the proper immune response and not require a booster three, six, whatever months down the road? Um, we don't know that yet. It's coming. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've always said this. We're looking at probably around spring where we're going to have a bigger rollout. And by fall of next year, that's when everybody's going to have an opportunity. I don't see that timeline changing anytime. All right, Jason, thank you very much for the update. 
Hey, it was a pleasure. Take care. That is Jason Tetro, infectious disease expert and host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, giving us an update on the stories that you kind of been seeing in the news the last week or so, the updates on the vaccine situation, that AstraZeneca one, which is also known as the Oxford Vaccine Project, has been getting a lot of attention. But as Jason said, there's still a ways to go, but it is hopeful and positive. This is Mornings with Simi. Leading the BC Liberals has been a great honour, but now it's time for me to make room for someone else to take over this role. That was Andrew Wilkinson yesterday in his very brief, like, minute-and-a-half statement where he announced he is going to be stepping down and will leave the post as leader of the BC Liberals when a new leader is chosen. But it also left a whole lot of questions which he did not answer. And, of course, there's also the question of the final results from election night. One of the areas where we're still waiting for that final result is Richmond-Queensborough, where right now it looks like BC Liberal uh, and former MLA Jazz Joel has lost the seat. But we thought, you know what, let's talk to him about what's next for him and the party. He joins us now. Jazz, thanks for being here. A pleasure. What did you think when you heard Andrew Wilkinson's statement yesterday? Well, I think uh, the statement that uh, Andrew made uh, wasn't a surprise to me or a surprise to anyone um, uh, in the party, really. Um, I think, uh, you know, a situation like this, uh, this is going to come down to a conversation with caucus. Uh, which hasn't happened yet, uh, and certainly I won't be a part of that. Uh, but certainly uh, there'll be a lot of conversation, and I think uh, there is a desire, uh, I think, within the party uh, to start moving towards uh, rebuilding. Now, that rebuilding doesn't necessarily have to begin in 2021 in the sense of a leadership race. It may be even 2022, but that's a conversation I think the party and the caucus will have and come to um uh, a place, you know. I think part of the conversation is going to be: look, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Let's not rush this. Um, you saw the conservative, federal conservative race, where it did hamper the ability to meet people beyond just Zoom calls. Um, so that we have to have a conversation in regards to what does that leadership race look like? Do we want to allow for greater travel, uh, greater interaction? And that means maybe perhaps mm-hmm. starting a little bit later. And hopefully, we'll have a vaccine uh, in time for for us to do so. I think the bigger conversations to me really is about what does this party represent? What does it mean in the third decade of the 21st century? Our core issue, in my personal opinion, has been that we've ceded too much ground on a lot of very important issues, particularly for uh, Metro Vancouver uh, voters. Uh, It looks at climate change, housing and affordability, transit, education. Those issues are near and dear. And I think we've done good work as Liberals on on these files, but we haven't done enough to talk about them and talk consistently about these well, issues in a way that re- that lower mainland residents uh, can relate to. What did you hear uh, I mean, on the doorsteps? And when you were campaigning, what were they telling you about the BC Liberals? Well, I think I, I think that there is uh, a, 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 what I just said. I think that's part of it. Uh, they didn't necessarily articulate it that way. I think we have a challenge, and, and that the NDP has labeled us as a party that doesn't care or is out of touch. Um, I think we need to do a better job, and the best way to do that job is actually have a very diverse caucus that is reflective of uh, Metro Vancouver and of the province. Um, Part of the challenge is that this party, uh, election cycle after election cycle, probably the last three to four election cycles, has slowly been losing urban votes. And it's been a trickle, and on Saturday it turned into a tsunami. You know, the average age in this country is 41. In communities like uh, Surrey Cloverdale, the average age is 37. Um, there's a lot of young families living out in the suburbs, which represent 75% of the lower mainland. We've got to do a better job connecting with them. 
Mm-hmm. I think you saw some of that renewal in places like Richmond. You had Matt Pitcairn, my colleague, uh, Alexa Liu, myself. Um, but we haven't done enough of that. Right. And we didn't renew enough and fast enough. Um, you know, in 2017, BC voters didn't trust any one party with a majority. That gave the BC Liberals time to renew. We didn't renew. So in 2020, BC voters inflicted renewal upon us. Right. But can you can you can you start the renewal process? Can you do all that stuff that you're talking about there with Andrew Wilkinson still as the leader? Because he says he's going to stay until a new leader is chosen. Or would it be better for him to go now, have an interim leader, and you can start the renewal process with a whole fresh face? I think you're probably going to hear from party members in regards to what they feel. I think there is a meeting. Uh, there generally is a conversation right after an election. They do a, a, a have a conversation across the province with every respective uh, constituency and get their thoughts on what went wrong or what went right. Um, caucus has not met yet. So I think what you're just saying, that conversation is going to be happening very soon. And then a decision will be made in regards to what people feel. If they're okay with the present course that Mr. Wilkinson has laid out, so be it. But if it's not, as you know very well in politics, those decisions can be made very quickly. They're out of my hands, certainly. Yeah, I know, but but I'll leave that to caucus. But that's the thing. You you talk about they're going to talk to caucus about that, but you just pointed out a lot of the younger candidates that ran were candidates like yourself, like Alexa Liu, like Matt Picairn, who didn't necessarily win. How do those voices also make it into this process? Because I think you're hearing some of that within the party. And it's not just the, the elected MLAs uh, that will be having this conversation. There are tens of thousands of volunteers for this party. There are many people who donate to this party. They're members of the executive of this party. They're part of the constituency associations in this party. So there will be an eventual consensus in regards to where we need to go. Um, and uh, that part of that conversation is, do we have an interim leader moving forward? Who will that interim leader be if we wish to have it? if we wish to have one. And then from there, what will the leadership race look like? And, and when will that leadership race, uh, when will that leadership race occur? So, you know, I, this is a pretty fluid situation. I think uh, if there's going to be a, a broader conversation in regards to who should stay and, and when they should stay or who should be leading the party, um, I think that's going to come right. ahead pretty quickly. And you know, of course, we have to ask this as well. <laughs> Jazz, are you interested in the job? I, I, you know, I know this gets thrown about, and, and everybody talks about this stuff. I have not had a conversation with anybody about organizing a, a team. I haven't even talked to my family about whether or not I pursue this. You know, I want to be part of the renewal, and sometimes you can do that outside, um, and sometimes you do put your hat in the ring. I have not actually gone through that process of going, do I want to do this? Because once you're, once you're in, this is a really an 8- to 12-year commitment of your life. Um, so, uh, will I think about it? Yes, I will. Have I made a decision? I'm not even close to, to, to having that conversation. Like I said, that's a conversation you got to have with your family and friends specifically. And then at, point, at, at some point you got to think about moving forward, but I'm not at that space right now. I'm still trying to process and trying to understand what happened on Saturday. And to a certain degree, I still got to grab my signs and clean up the campaign office. So that's where my head's at right, right now. Well, then but we'll I have will to hopefully have a fulsome answer for you uh, sometime at a later date. Okay, and we expect you to come back and tell us about that fulsome answer. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, thanks, Jazz. Thanks, That's Jazz Hall, of course, the BC Liberal candidate in Richmond, Queensborough, former MLA there, was elected in 2017. Uh, he does expect that he lost his seat on Saturday night, although still waiting for the final count on that. Uh, but again, he mentioned, you know, time for renewal for the party. Can that happen? With Andrew Wilkinson going to stay in place, though, until a new leader is chosen. This is Mornings with Simi.
I mean, if you had to pick a week for it to be bat week, this is probably a very good week for it. And as a matter of fact, it is bat week. We wanted to talk more about that now with the help of our guest, Danielle Dagonet, who's a regional bat coordinator for the Metro Vancouver Squamish area with the Community Bat Programs of BC. Danielle, thanks for being here. Thank you and good morning. You do a lot of bat work. Uh, Yes, I um, do a lot of outreach for bats throughout the year. Um, as well as workshops, and uh, I answer all phone calls and emails that people have about that. And October is especially um, very, very busy because that's when a lot of people have bats on their mind, which is why Bat Week came about. That's so perfect, right? Such perfect timing for that. Why do people have bats on their mind at this time of year? Are they seeing more of them? Uh, no. So actually, bats are, most of them are hibernating or on their way to their hibernation site, so they're not active in October. Um, but because of Halloween and the perceptions that people have with the bats and the scary and the fear, um, we see decorations and there's movies. And so Bat Week is really a time that we want to celebrate bats and change that public perception of bats and put it towards the positive. Yeah, let's talk about that then. So what are some of the biggest, do you think, misconceptions people have about bats? Um, well, a lot of people fear bats and um, disease is on the mind. So recently we had a rabies death last year, and then this year we have COVID. And so people are scared that bats carry tons and tons of diseases and that they're going to hurt them, uh, hurt their loved ones. The only disease that bats carry in British Columbia is rabies, and the risk is very low. It's less than 1%. So the death that we experienced last year, which was very unfortunate, was only the second death of rabies since 1924. Okay, but people seem very scared. I mean, where do bats live? Where can you find them? They live all over the place. They, the city is full of bats. If you go to a green space or an area that has water, like Trout Lake in Vancouver or Stanley Park, you're sure to find them. Um, they are one of the most common wildlife that we have in the city. We just, we just don't see them because they're out at night and people are not staring up at the sky when they're out at night. Oh, so they're probably more common than we realize. Definitely, definitely, yes. I said, Danielle, what do you find so fascinating? You've devoted, you're devoting your life to bats. Why? Why do, what do you find so fascinating about them? Um, they're just very mysterious animals, and there's just so much that we need to learn about them. Uh, when I started researching bats 10 years ago, there was only 1,200 species. In the last uh, um, 10 to 12 years, we've discovered another 200 species of bats. Uh, so more research is being done. Um, there's uh, in North America, we're facing white-nose syndrome, so our, our bat populations are dropping drastically. And so as we learn more about bats and get more outreach out there and more research, we're discovering more and more about bats. And I just find it so fascinating. Every year I learn something new. And it's just, it's, it's very, it's a great field to be in when you're constantly learning. Yeah, and what are, why are we losing bats? What's happening? Uh, so we have lots of habitat loss. With bats being in the city, lots of people don't want them. Um, we have species that live in buildings and people's homes, and so they're being pushed out of people's buildings. Uh, bats only have one baby a year, and so it's really important that they have that location to have their young. Um, it's really hard for them to recover um, from threats. And we have white-nose syndrome, which is a disease that came into North America in 2006, um, and it's killed over 7 million bats and has put three species, three Canadian species on the endangered list. Is there anything that can be done about that syndrome? Uh, we're researching. There's lots of trials that we're doing to try to help them. The biggest thing that people can do um, in BC is to report any dead bats. So starting the day after bat week, which is November 1st until May 31st, if you can report any dead bats uh, to me, uh, just go to um, 
BC Bats with an S on the website. You'll get an email and a phone number, and I will come and pick them up. And we use those dead bats to um, track white nose syndrome across the continent. Okay, so what does that tell us? Like, is it all over the continent at this point? Uh, no, it's uh, it hasn't been confirmed in British Columbia, but there are many places in Washington where it's been confirmed, and we suspect that it's um, here or going to move here very soon. Okay, so then for people to really help out then, uh, Danielle, I guess we need to understand that bats aren't going to hurt you. No, they mostly keep to themselves. Um, there's lots of people that live with bats for years and they have very few bat encounters. Um, they're, they're animals that just want to be left alone. Uh, they sleep during the day and they're active at night. Um, if you have a bat uh, roosting on the outside of your home, if you just leave it alone, it will leave in a couple of days once it's done feeding in your area. So it's just trying to help you by eating the insects. So you kind of want a bat in your neighborhood. Yeah, they're great pest control. They help with your garden. They help our farmers. They help our forests. Okay, good to know. Danielle, thank you. Thank you very much. Ha- have um, a good day. Yeah. Can I can I just say that with Bat Week, um, residents in city of Richmond, which is our brand new bat-friendly community, has put out a social media Bat Week event, and you can just follow them on their social media platforms at hashtag Bat Week. And the city of Delta is also um, celebrating bats with their social media as well. I love so it. It's great that get out there and learn about bats and get some appreciation. We will. Danielle, thanks for your time. Thank you very much and happy Bat Week. Happy Bat Week to you too. That's Danielle Dagonet, the regional bat coordinator for the Metro Vancouver Squamish area with the Community Bat Programs of BC. Who knew, right, that the love of bats was that extensive out there? So don't be scared if you see one, as Danielle said. They're there to help you.